I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Sakshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. I saw in Goa, as uh, if you who have been following All Things Policy for a while uh, might know, and um, one of my favorite things about the Goa Archaeological Museum is this very interesting statue of a god called Vetala, who is uh, usually described as a skeletal figure with protruding fangs and 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 a lolling tongue coming out of his mouth, who is usually absolutely stark naked and not to put too fine a point on it, a giant raging erection. And uh, the worship of Vetala actually continues to this very day in parts of rural Goa. He's considered to be a kind of protector deity who comes and visits villages, and there are similar deities to Vetala. Across India's west coast, quite interestingly, um, if you look at uh, the Tulu countries, for example, in coastal Karnataka, there is a worship of these deities called Bhutas, who who can also be described as, for example, ghouls. Generally, have these very interesting kind of quote unquote subaltern kind of backgrounds. There are, for example, Muslim Bhutas such as Ali Bhuta, and it's not really something that's restricted to Tulu Nadu and Go either, because we also have versions of this kind of worship in Kerala as well. Um, have with me my friend uh, Aditya Mohanan. Uh, Aditya is one of most interesting guys I know he's an archaeologist and a musician he has this fascinating metal album called Of the Lotus and the Thunderbolt that's a freaking epic name uh, we'll put a Spotify link in the description if you guys are interested and not only is Aditya a fairly successful musician but he's also a successful archaeologist and art historian he has recently published a very interesting paper in the SOAS Journal of Postgraduate Studies about the worship of these interesting deities called Atayams in Kerala. And what we're going to be doing over the next half an hour or so is trying to understand the rituals that are involved in the worship of these fascinating deities. How exactly did the worship of them originate? Who are the communities that are involved in their worship? And how are perceptions of Tayams and their worship different from what we call the quote-unquote a great tradition? If you've listened to my previous podcast on all things policy uh, with Vivek Joseph, then you might know a little bit about them. We've been talking about local traditions and how they're perceived in comparison to say a temple-based Puranic traditions for quite a while over the last few months. But without any further ado, let's actually come and try to understand the worship of Tayams. Um, Althea, tell us about it. What exactly uh, are Tayams and what is the worship of Tayams in Kerala like? Uh, hi, Amirut. Thanks for having me on here. It's nice to be on here again. So Tayams actually one of the most fascinating subjects I've ever come across because uh, even though I grew up in Bombay, I would go back to my hometown of Payanur, which is a uh, extremely north in the Malabar region of Kerala. And every, I think every October to uh, February timescale every year that I was there, uh, my family would take me to see this ritual, which was essentially what today many would call a possession ritual. Uh, now, I think uh, there's a lot of nuance that goes into, uh, quote-unquote, a possession ritual in every geocultural landscape. But um, with the image, really interesting. You have these usually men, I would like to stress on men, uh, dressing up or donning the garb of uh, local deities, which uh, uh, most likely no one's heard of who's not from the region, unless it's a researcher or someone who's particularly interested in Tayyam. And there's like a ritual that spans roughly uh, three days to like a week of a time scale. And um, it's a very interesting one. You have three days of uh, the gods slowly descending 
into the body of the performer and there's a bunch of uh, rituals that the performer is expected to undertake before uh, the god finally is sort of embodies the man in that situation and then what you see is some of the most like exciting moments of my life like you know visually speaking because just to paint a rough picture you have the at the final stage of the ritual you have a man who's dressed in like this almost otherworldly looking sacred attire it's just a mixture of whites blacks and uh, yellows and reds and silver and there's a lot of weapons uh, that are you know sort of jangling and a lot of bells and a lot of drums you know and like creating this hypnotic rhythm and you have this man dancing to the rhythm of these drummers and you have the drummers adapting to the movements of the dancer and at the end of it uh, and this is there's of course a large crowd this is happening as a spectacle but this is not just a random spectacle on the road this is a very very curated space that has to do a lot with the idea of sacred and profane and you uh, towards the end of the ritual you have devotees uh, coming in to uh, ask uh, the deity for various things you know like for that just i guess human beings have desires and uh, they consider these deities very powerful because it's a very direct opportunity to talk to a divine creature uh, and you know i think it's one of the most fascinating things one of the most fascinating rituals that i think survive in india and i'm i think it's got a very very interesting rich history but uh, i think a lot of it is really muddy because uh, this is one of those rituals that are not documented because this doesn't happen in a temple uh, there's always a difference uh, if you, if you go to for example if you go to payanur which is my hometown uh, you'll see that there's a local subramania temple that is dedicated he's sort of like a high god like you know uh the worship is predominantly facilitated by uh nambudris who are brahmins of the regions uh but when you go for a tayyam worship what you see is there's local centers of worship uh and they're a lot more modest than a temple lot less ornamental uh and just like smaller uh, space space wise you know and it's predominantly people from uh, depressed classes of society that facilitate the worship of tayyam so there's a few stark differences but it's also very interesting how people don't the they, they don't differentiate between whether god comes from and you know when you worship god there's only one god at least that's what i've seen as a perceiver of the ritual this is very interesting because there seems to be this tendency um not just in coastal southern india but more generally across southern india as well and if you look at for example in telangana or if you look at Uh, the worship of Iyanar in Tamil Nadu, which incidentally I did a podcast on with Julie Wayne for those who've been following all things policy for once. But that that again, like, kind of has a lot of similar elements in the sense that this is belief that individuals from a particular community and very often not from an upper caste community are possessed by a deity and become a sign of the deity. And people generally from across class and caste backgrounds believe in and believe that this this deity has come into the body of this particular individual and kind of worship him or her and then interact with them ask them for protection ask them for blessings ask them for prophecies somehow and it's, it's all it's also interesting to think about just how how ancient a lot of these religious ideas might be right we know for example in in the case of 
Mylor or Malanna in the Dakin that he's a very syncretic deity who kind of whose whose worship incorporates the practices of Hindu communities or I mean say quote unquote Hindu communities who come from pastoralist backgrounds as well as Muslims. But what about Tayams Aditya? Like how did the worship of Tayams originate? Who exactly are the communities that you know that embody this practice that that continue the worship of Tayams to this day? And how exactly how exactly do you think the practice of Tayam itself kind of reflects the historical trajectory that these communities have been through. Right. It's very interesting uh, that you brought up uh, that possession rituals happen uh, all across the South. And I think that's a very interesting, that was for me in my study, that was my starting point of asking questions. Of course, answers are very difficult to find, so I can't give you an absolute answer. But I think uh, what the evidence points to is that um, local communities in all, all across all across south india and i think particularly i would say like the coastal region like for example you mentioned tulunad tulunad has a ritual called bhuta kola which is as you said earlier rituals that have to do with bhutas bhutas particularly the, the way uh, bhutas are interpreted from my ethnography in the field what i've understood is bhuta sort of contrasts a deva in a sense that a deva is omniscient omnipresent you can appeal to a deva from anywhere anytime bhuta is sort of an elemental deity um and now when we say that it can take multiple garbs it can either be like a forest deity or like uh, the deity of a river or a pond or something or it can also be a ancestor sort of like a ghost i hate to use the word ghost but like for the sake of brevity i will have to use that word um now, when we see like Bhuta Kola, when we see Tayyam, there's a lot of similarities. When you watch the rituals, there's a lot of similarities. If you're interested, Wikipedia does a very good job of uh, describing Bhuta Kola, actually. And then you, you go down south further in Kerala and you see Bhadrakali rituals happening in the same way, where you have um, the entire, uh, there's this entire Puranic episode that is uh, sort of, and this is, but again, it's very different from Tayyam. Uh, when you look at the caste dynamics and when you look at the narratives that are being portrayed over there. But nevertheless, the well, let's just say the cosmetic form of it is strikingly similar. You have a man who dresses up as Bhadrakali and sort of enacts like, different communities, enact different uh, stages of the story of Bhadrakali killing Darika, uh, the demon, um, the Asura, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then I think when you go further inwards in Kerala towards Patanam Titta, you have another ritual called Padayani. My friend Rohit actually is also a performer of Padayani, one of the communities that ends up performing Padayani. And, oh, wow. Uh, they also have their own uh, uh, sort of this uh, possession thingy going on where a bunch of communities involved, there's a bunch of music that happens and it's sort of a re-enaction of a ritual, right? So now the thing is, when we see, when we looked at the teleology of every... Uh, ritual as that happens as such these possession rituals it seems that at different in in different geocultural spaces they serve different purposes i feel like tayam and butakola yeah maybe the 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 functions are kind of similar but if you take padayani and tayam which ha both happen in kerala the functions and the functionings also are extremely different um but at the same time when we look at the cosmetics of it i think it becomes a little bit apparent to the viewer that you know somewhere these rituals could have very likely could have had a common origin not necessarily and that's a different debate but you know 
just just when we look at the cosmetics of it and we look at the way the ritual is ordered and the different stages of the ritual i feel like there could be a uh a similar origin which is what a lot of researchers have postulated as well um now it's a very interesting the, point i think i just want to like leap in here to to kind of highlight the fact that you're you're talking about this cosmetic aspect of it and you're talking about the fact that it works differently in different kinds of geocultural spaces right the kind of meanings that it has for local communities yeah. can vary quite significantly and i think Absolutely. That's 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 such an interesting point because it kind of shows that community might be picking up from the same kind of set of ritual practices and continues to reformulate them to suit its own objectives and its own kind of religious or spiritual or political or social needs over the centuries. Which which I find so fascinating when when we're looking at local rituals like this is that there isn't like a single hard and fast rule that explains how how they how they operate. You have to actually do an ethnographic study like what you've done. to understand the Absolutely. way that local communities formulate and engage with these practices yeah i'd say the keyword here is uh, function what function does this serve like uh, i mean <laughs> probably would risk upsetting some believers in this case but hey i i am also a believer just i believe in it differently but getting back to i think the origin of this i feel like the common origin at some point if you i, I don't i don't want to uh, convolute the argument by like you know debating about cultural historical narratives over here but i feel like if a set of communities were were sort of uh, how do i say this they all had their own version of this sort of a ritual which even today is the case as you said in goa as well like you know which is western coast of india you have this sort of a possession ritual happening with vetal you know uh, and then your bhuta worship so what the picture that's drawn over here is that there's rituals based on a similar skeletal structure the apparatus is sort of somewhere picking up from uh, a similar how do i say this a similar set of attributes of uh, like a ritual attributes and hmm. they using it differently at different points in space and time to suit to suit different purposes so uh, so the, i just so like what exactly was this kind of social context from which these practices were picked up to create the theyam art form what do you think right so from my i, I can only speak about the tayam as much as i would love to speak about every ritual i don't think i'm qualified to do that but i think it's like when when we look at a particular region uh, we do look at the history and the processes the cultural processes and we do look at uh, the sociology of the region to understand why tayam looks the way it did today which uh, it, it like i'm so sure tayam just 200 300 years ago must have looked so different must have probably served a different purpose you know so right. everything that a ritual demonstrates i think somewhere also is a reaction to the social tone the tone of society at that point uh, you know I, i i don't like that word tone which it's very vague but uh, let's just say the the condition of society in that moment the social the social condition uh depends on where you are in society you know and the communities that um conduct the ritayam rituals predominantly are uh communities from different classes so historically uh, we would see them as uh, people from mainly from the untouchable communities and uh, the caste system in kerala uh, is extremely rigorous at that point in history Uh, as uh, anyone who studied the history of kerala would know for example a very popular quote would be swami vivekanand's um but i in my opinion i feel like tayam has ex- like mainly to do with the social positioning of the people who conduct these rituals uh because 
for the most part uh, when we see the rituals that are being conducted and the gods that are being venerated and the deities that are possessing the performers these are usually people uh, in if if you consider their mythologies you will see that they were wronged at some point uh, and there's a social injustice as a motive is very 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 pronounced in that sense hmm. so um i think for me i think it's it's better to uh, talk about a personal experience so i was uh, observing this tayam uh, known as kandanar kelan in uh, which happens all around payanur nileshwar uh, sort of uh, area and the mythology that's this is what i understood from speaking to three different communities that perform the same tayam um and mind you there's over 400 different tayams so like everyone wow. must be considered equally like yeah it's really vast but so when i was speaking to families that conduct the kandanar kelan tayam ritual the mythology is like sort of painful it's you know as contrasted to let's just say uh, sort of like a high god narrative if you take you know uh, ram winning the battle against ravan or krishna uh, rescuing people from different cases or like uh, sort of mentoring arjuna or you know like it's very different from a hero it's actually the protagonist in this case is someone who suffered uh social injustice because of his or her their position in society uh it's not that there's anyone directly coming and affecting the well-being of the people that are being portrayed here it's more so that their social positioning and conditioning is getting them into landing them in situations that are extremely extremely just less just like horrible you know so kandanar kelan is a really sad story there's this man who is from a depressed class the caste that mainly perform kandanar kelan are uh, the vannan caste uh, historically they are the washerman caste and uh, washerman not of like upper class uh, upper caste clothes or uh, they <laughs> washerman of lower caste uh, people's clothing and um, uh, like you know so the cloth clothing that would be seen as impure uh, traditionally like for example blood soaked clothes or uh, you know like sort of like clothes that were used uh, during a uh, sort of like birth giving ceremony of sorts you know so like uh, that's that's what the vanan caste professional had to like entail that that was the profile so this is predominantly performed by the caste that does this um now you have uh, the the ritual which also like of course someone doesn't do just one thing there's many like occupations that you can seek out no matter which position of society you are in i mean if we look at it realistically so the man who we concerned with in this mythology his story entails that he sort of found himself this job this gig where uh, he had to pick up dried leaves that were fallen all over the estate where he was working and he had to collect them pull them more and i think every fortnight he had to set fire to them and basically make sure that uh it's it's a presentable estate you know and one of these days uh where he was setting fire to these massive heaps of uh dried uh, twigs and leaves and what not he found himself stuck in the midst of the fire and there was no escape he could not find any way out so he attempted to climb a tree which was in the center of uh, wherever this activity is going on and as he climbed the tree he saw that there's two to three cobras that are seated on the branches just perched just looking at him he immediately jumps off uh, <laughs> the branch as anyone would do i mean i would do that and uh, he is the, the the cobras jump off as well this is again this is a 
story. Let's not take this too literally. And basically, the story ends with him dying in the flames, uh, being chased by cobras and being bitten by them. Uh, now, again, I don't want to emphasize. Uh, I don't. I don't want. I don't want to. Uh, it's not. It's. I don't think it's relevant whether this story is uh, true or not. Uh, it's rather the emotion, the sentiment behind the story that is extremely important, is what I would say. Because that sentiment is a reflection of the collective sentiment of the community that uh, conducts these rituals, you know. And the theme, injustice and tragedy, I would say, these, these are the two keywords I would use to sort of, you know, summarize the, the emotional spectrum of the story. And even today, if you see Kandalar Kilan, it's like, uh, there's... On his uh, torso, you see two snakes coming in from the left and right side of his lower abdomen section and sort of their mouths uh, sort of center around his left and right nipples. And, that, you know, I think it's it's also like being played into the symbol over there. You know, so when a witch, you know, you know, someone who's perceiving the ritual is looking at the tayyam, they also see the snake symbolism and they see that, you know, like, at a very sensitive point in that human being's body is where the snake is sort of the, the fangs are being, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think like that's, that's a very interesting one. And another one uh, is definitely would uh, like women, you know, women, women tayyams who incidentally are played by men, uh, which is another whole topic, <laughs> but would be that there's, which is again to uh, cut it down short, is a story that has to do with injustice. And there's this woman uh, who's uh, from, uh, in this case, she's from an upper caste family. Even though she is venerated by lower caste, in, 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 in the mythology, she's from an upper caste family. And uh, this story doesn't involve a caste atrocity. It involves a gender atrocity in this case. And uh, you have this woman who's uh, actually very young and who's not, she's, I mean, uh, according to the story, she is completely innocent and, you know, she has no reason to entertain people who uh, are slandering her. But nevertheless, her family ends up sort of asking her to vindicate her own reputation in that sense. And then you have Shiva and uh, Parvati coming into the story. And uh, this it's revealed to her that she's a Devi. And when she was supposed to immolate herself, the fire does not burn her in that sense. And out comes the Devi, there's a metamorphosis. And the woman who was being wronged in that, in, in that circumstance ends up becoming a deity who has to be, who has to be uh, worshipped and satisfied. And, you know, at least that's the model of that story. So you have, you have roughly about over 400 stories like this. Like, you know, of course, there are some Tayyams that uh, have today taken on the garb of this. For example, Vishnumurti Tayyam. Uh, who is a very uh, ferocious looking Tayyam. And um, if you look at the ritual, there's some sacrificial elements involved just to get the gist of it. But nevertheless, it's said to be a very benevolent Tayyam. And the narrative is very different from the ones that we are speaking of over here. It's sort of more like a Sanskritic narrative to say, you know. I hope that clears out that point. This is this is fascinating. Like, there's just a sheer variety of stories and like, different historical kernels like i mean as you said it doesn't necessarily matter if these are based on real events or not but the fact that these stories have taken shape the way that they have reveals a lot about the practitioners of this art form and the social circumstances that their ancestors initially lived in that led to their stories 
evolving in this particular way, which, which is so fascinating. The fact that you have podcast individuals who are believed or who to have become Thayams. The fact that this woman, especially, I find very interesting because even though she is supposed to have been, you know, an injustice was committed to her by men, she continues to have her story performed by male performers. So this, the, what I find really interesting about your approach, I think, is that there's this intersectional aspect to it where you're looking um, at oligarchies not just of caste but and class but also of a gender as well that even though Tayyam is an art form that is performed by historically depressed communities such as Dalits that nevertheless there are still dynamics even within the performance of the Tayyam art form which is just so interesting to think about. Okay, so all of this is really fascinating, Anthea. But one thing that I particularly enjoy, that in, in addition to the research you've done on Tayams in general, is this kind of ethnomusicological approach that you've got going in the paper, yeah. where you kind of look at and at how different ethnographies have responded to what is fundamentally the same kind of idea of kind of propitiating deities using music. So can you tell us a little bit about the way that like modern perceptions of say, let's say temple dramas differ with relation to that of Tayam dramas? Like is, is there a caste angle to this? Is there a religious angle to this? What have you seen in your explorations on the ground? I would say there's definitely a caste angle to this. Uh, religious angle though, I mean, I think a lot of Tayam, most Tayam performers I think situate themselves uh, within uh, what you would today call the Hindu religion. But uh, the the caste one is not so pronounced as such, you know, because like casteism works very differently today than it uh, worked just say like 70, 80 years ago in Kerala. So uh, it's sort of there's undercurrents. There's never like an overt form of discrimination or such. It's uh, it's more like there's a sense of perception that is definitely shaped by, I mean, I would say the caste and also the role that the uh, Chanda players play in uh, a Melam setting versus a Tayyam setting. You know, hmm. so if when you take the Melam, it's a lot more structured. Uh, it's a lot more organized. And I mean, you can tell that, you know, there's a syllabus uh, that has been put in place to impart knowledge to, you know, uh, children who start training in uh, Melam performances. For like, you know, the Chanda drummers for like, or even Tagilo, any, any form of percussion rather, you know. And they train... Uh, alongside someone who's uh, playing uh, melodic, the melodic element of, uh, you know, the ritual. So yeah. when we say there's different talas, different ragas that are supposed to be employed at particular points in the day, at particular spots within the temple compound, uh, particular sounds can only be played at certain points uh, in space and time. Uh, and at the same time, the kind of Education that they received is extremely, as I said, there's there's a, there's a whole corpus that has been, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a very systemic way of imparting knowledge onto someone. So therefore, hmm. like the way they go about, uh, it's a ritual form of music, essentially. So at different points in the ritual, there's different elements of music. So that basically means that all these musicological elements also are situated within a ritual paradigm. And this is in turn supplemented with, you know, these people are often also taught Sanskritic mythology and Puranic narratives and shlokas and stuff like that, you know. Uh, this hmm. has contrasted with in my study when I was interviewing Chanda players from like a Tayyam uh, setting. It's very, very different. The way they learn how to play the Chanda, even though if you, if you see the techniques and the counts and the aesthetics 
and as well as the make of the instrument and the sourcing of the ecological materials that are required to build these instrument is hmm. actually remarkably similar remarkably uh, which is what yes which is what leads me and other uh, researchers to believe that this instrument has been in the region way longer than other like later cultural um how do i say this like you know uh, for example I, i would say this is definitely a pre brahmanical instrument in the region and not just in kerala there's there all over i'm sure in the deccan also there are instances that you could point out to and even in uh, tamil nadu there's a variant of the chanda so in when we come to the yam performance the usage is very very different they are not seen as musicians by themselves and the main reason for that is because not uh, a rehearsed sort of a uh, activity in that sense it's uh sort of an it's there's yes there's templates there's performance templates where like you know at certain points when you watch kandanar kelan there's there's an introduction where he comes and addresses the crowd and then there's this sort of a blood curdling kind of a war cry and hmm. um then slowly you start building the flame up and as the flame increases in size the speed of the performer also increases because you can't spend as much time in a greater flame as compared to like in a smaller flame so there's all these rough uh, sketches around which in the in the, but whatever happens between point a and b is where the improvisation and artistic element would also come in in a certain sense so what often happens is the drummers uh, they don't have a set structure they usually complementing or they drawing from the movements and the gestures that the tayam dancer the, the 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 dancer who's engaging in the kaliyattam himself they, they this it's sort of like a give and take that is happening over there so even though i would i in my sense in in my idea i would i would definitely call that musical but for a lot of people music means a very different thing you know so That, that really it really boils down to semantics over there but you do see why uh, when we when we say you know in a merla when we say there's a composition you know that the you know the composition and the way it goes and you know if you've heard this since you were a child you can probably hum the tunes and you you know you know for example when there's a particular drum roll you're just like oh yeah there's going to be a transition now because that's what the drum roll stands for but okay. in the case of tayam there's no predictability as such it's complementing the motion of the dancer at the same time and the dancer is drawing from the rhythm and the tempo of the chanda players in that uh, circumstance so you see why it's not understood particularly as music which uh, also means that they don't get the kind of a distinguished recognition that i believe they do deserve you know hmm, there's a lot to think about there but um, let's just come back to it after a quick ad break Okay yeah so we were saying the recognition angle is is very interesting i'd like to like dwell on that a little bit because i i did this very interesting discussion with this filmmaker called Julie Wayne who studies the worship of Iyengar in rural Tamil Nadu and basically the the worship of Iyengar is is mostly based on the activities of this particular caste of potters called the Vailars and um, these guys have been making pottery for the god for generations they spend um you know good chunk of their year just creating these a uh, beautiful uh, terracotta offerings i mean on the shaped as cattle or as horses which are then given to the god but uh-huh, increasingly yeah, 
Yeah, right. So it's but increasingly whalers today, the 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 porters are refusing to teach their children their craft, and they're refusing to let the children even like come near their clay. They want them to get a modern education and seek modern, high-paying jobs because it's simply not economical to be full-time porters anymore. The way that you know India is, is modernized and globalized. And I'm I'm wondering, given the given that there's this kind of gap in the perception between how temple musicians versus theyam musicians are kind of perceived publicly, does it also result in a in a difference in the way that they are treated by the state in terms of the kind of financial support they receive? Absolutely, absolutely. So I've uh, spoken about this towards uh, the ending, uh, the conclusion of my paper. Um, this is. Uh, almost exactly what you described that's happening with the Veller Potters of uh, Ayanar in Tamil Nadu is actually what's happening. Like it's pretty much the same thing. So uh, with Malam performers, there's uh, the Devaswam board uh, takes care of them. They get a certain amount of stipend every month for their service to preserving this uh, heritage. You can learn more if you read the paper. I don't want to get too much into uh, which benefits <laughs> goes to whom and what. But there's problems sure. with that, which is which is a totally different debate altogether. But um, at the same time, the, they're at least getting some amount, even though like it's not enough to by today's standards. These were laws that were made in the 80s. You know, so like the economy is drastically changed now. Like that amount does not suffice anymore to keep the, and this is particularly happening in the marar caste the temple drummers they're from this caste called the marar caste so it's really not uh, keeping the the generations today it's not keeping them hooked on to like oh yeah i want to preserve this tradition but at the same time there's some incentive there is some incentive so you definitely have more uh, younger generation marar drummers joining temple ensembles and melams and stuff whereas when you see tayyam performers from my uh, experience from my interviews, what I understood was that there's a overwhelmingly large amount of you know, uh, Velen Manan drummers uh, who just are not very interested to teach their children how to play this. They would rather send them and get them in like an engineering degree or medicine degree or like a job that you know is does basically lets them go above and beyond or hand to mouth existence. So the tradition is definitely being compromised in that sense and. Uh, the thing with uh, Tayyam is a little complicated. The Kerala government offers benefits to to uh, artists, but the thing with Tayyam is it's somewhere liminal. Like we're not too sure if it's a ritual or an art form, and I think that also means that they're excluded from receiving the the kind of benefits that they should be receiving, particularly for. Uh, the, uh, let me. I, I'm. I think some Tayyam performers do. Uh, have are ensuring that they do receive some benefits from the state because they've started uh, sort of coalescing together and coming together understanding that, yeah, there is a collective need for some sort mm. of remuneration for keeping this tradition alive. But at the same time, it's they they all treat it as Tayyam performers. It doesn't matter which uh, duty you are assigned or which uh, which sort of pillar of the ritual you are serving as, you know. Uh, it, it, it's everyone's seen as just a Tayyam performer, you know, so there's no sense of distinction. Whereas if you see the way the uh, temple authorities uh, get their benefits, there's, there is a stratified understanding of, yeah, oh, the, every, every individual plays a different role in the structure. So the benefits also have to be a reflection of the role that they play. That is not there in the case with the Tayyam performers. So that is what I've noticed. Fascinating. As always, Aditya, like you, you've given us this uh, a really fascinating and nuanced perspective 
of how India's vibrant local traditions are kind of clashing with the way that India is modernizing and what happens to heritage at the intersection of these of these two massive cogs as it were you you the paper was absolutely fascinating i'm going to make sure there's a link in the description and also a link to your album the lotus and the thunderbolt for all the metal uh-huh. aficionados in in our in our listenership so thank you as always man it's been a real pleasure having you and uh, we yeah, hope to see you on all things policy soon yeah my pleasure and um, thank you all for listening to all things policy if you liked our show Don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashila inst. or our website takshashila.org.in